The title of this evening's talk is Impermanence, the Gateway to Liberation. And beginning with some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe, this is from the year 1919. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in night. It is the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It is a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from wandering Japanese monk Ryokan, Our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. Tibetan monk um, shared this story there's a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity for gas for light or for warmth no electricity for cooking This is the area where this monk was born and grew up. So for these necessities of life, light, warmth, and cooking, a fire is necessary. To start a new fire without matches each day is a project. It takes some time. So the people in this area never let their fires go out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with ashes so that in the morning, there's at least a coal or two to start their day. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night, they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning, they might not be alive. Also, when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the person, to let the next person know that they've finished, really finished. So, every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can really know for sure is that everything changes. 
So, paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of impermanence, anicca in Pali, is really the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, we could say, grew up in very comfortable and very protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayas uh, that's now known as Nepal, seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. And at Siddhartha's birth, a uh, local wise man told him told his parents that this baby would either grow up to be an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering his parents uh, in order to keep him on the kingly track uh, set out uh, set about to protect him from encountering suffering And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one with red, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that wasn't from Benares. My turban was of silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I didn't come down once from that palace. But all of this protection, luxury, and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend and chariot driver, uh, Chana, to take him for a ride into town. Well, his father uh, heard about this and ordered that ordered everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But, of course, as we know, it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. So, not long after they were beyond the palace wall, Siddhartha saw a person walking on the road with a great deal of difficulty covered with oozing sores. And he'd been so protected, he'd never seen anything like this. And he asked Chana, what is this? 
What's wrong with this person? His friend responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Well, Siddhartha had been so protected, he'd never seen anything quite like this. And it was, he was disturbed uh, by the sight and said he wanted to go home. And he had quite a restless night that night. But, oh, once again, he wanted to go out the next day. So there they went, down the road. And Siddhartha, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, thin, wispy hair. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. And he said to Chana, what's the matter with this person? This is an old person, Chana said. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All of your friends will get old. Well, that was enough that day for Siddhartha. So they went back to the palace, and he spent another restless night. But the next day, he wanted to go out again. And as they're nearing the village, he sees a group of people all dressed in white, and they're crying and they're wailing, and they're carrying a plank above their heads with something uh, on it that was covered with cloth. And Siddhartha asked Chano, What's this? What's going on here, and what, what are they carrying? And Chana responded, this is a funeral procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I'll die, you'll die, your parents will die. Everyone dies. Well, again, Siddhartha was <clears throat> considerably disturbed and said to Chana, enough for today, let's go home. Well, that night he barely slept. But the next morning he wanted to go out again. And it wasn't long before Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. He was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him and bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that? And Chana responded, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. Siddhartha took a good look and he responded to Chana, let's go home, this is enough. <clears throat> it's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, these sights that he saw, the four heavenly messengers as they're called, sickness, old age, death, and a, a truth seeker, a yogi, struck him deeply, struck him profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent and insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. He found himself interested and powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented. Seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. 
and again from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to himself or herself that she, he too, is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. And he goes on, As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And then he goes on. I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment deeply absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentariness of all appearances, the powerful, direct, and deep knowing of impermanence, The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And some words from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, Every sensation, 
every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. Some years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a very beautiful photograph on its front side. Some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photo was a very pleasant experience. I turned the card over and uh, this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covered this area creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago when this region was uplifted and erosion began the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So I turned the card uh, back to the photo side and looked with a, a different eye we could say and yet still with a pleasurable feeling in viewing that beautiful photograph. The places that we live in appear as though they have forever been the way they are now. Our attitude and our actions often reflect this. I teach the Dhamma in Israel every few years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. At one point when I was there, I found out that Jerusalem, a city built of rock, on rock, Jerusalem stone, has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times when I've looked up into the sky uh, to find stars and star formations that are familiar, kind of like old friends. And this is a little article that I found in the newspaper a while ago. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It then would take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. 
there will be no trace of Earth save perhaps for the, 19, for the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than 5 billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced the earth to a frigid cinder. 5 billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. And he goes on, however, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. <coughs> the word form uh, implies for us uh, a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world can't really be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. We mostly know it intellectually. And actually I think even more often we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, and by planning, and by living in and out of memories, and by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be. All of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face maybe disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. <clears throat> and we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed our appointment with life. We're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually much of the time we're practicing permanence. Much of the time I think many of us almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be so much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. So a good question you might ask yourself now and then. How often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying in changing opinions, varying and changing ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it quite tightly.
as we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body, heart, and mind through our practice, we begin to directly touch, to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seemingly solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute micro-changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality of thoughts that just fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story uh, that I actually heard on NPR some years ago that is a, is a true story, they said, about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components, breaking it all down and finding uh, nothing substantial. And it said that at that point he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing these huge padded slippers all the time just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we fear and resist so much of life? Without impermanence, actually, there would be no life. And some words from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, Long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. And in relationship to this, a poem by Red Hawk called The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go. But he's not free enough to weep, so he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through the sea of grain he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees, he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower, dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go, weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight. And he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed. To harvest cleanly and without regret. 
In this way he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting, one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, Nietzsche is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and the cycling of life on all of the planet. And the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joy in this changing process. Not getting caught up not getting lost and sinking in hopes, fears, attachments, and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume as, for instance, the new life that brings such incredible beauty, joy, and delight to us each spring. And the new day the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. And from William Blake, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. And to take this just a little further, something from the Buddha or the Buddha and his some of his disciples. It was said by the Buddha that <clears throat> at one time when a male deva was reveling and boasting about the realm of beautiful beings and celestial pleasure that he abided in, that upon hearing this, a female deva who was a, a very noble disciple of the Buddha thought, This foolish deva imagines his glory to be permanent and unchanging, unaware that it's subject to cutting off, perishing, and dissolution. She spoke the following stanza in order to dispel his delusion. And this is the female deva speaking to the foolish male deva. Don't you know, you fool, that maxim of the arhants? Impermanent are all formations. Their nature is to arise and vanish. Having arisen, they cease. Their appeasement is blissful. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things? the way of things, our nature as nature. There are many, many doors for us in our practice, in our life. It's said there are 84,000 Dhamma doors. So a practical and we could say current example. You've been sitting for an hour calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness has developed. 
and is known. And then the thought coming through, ah, this is good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe even more. Then strong bodily pain, sensations in the legs start up. Maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain. Put up with it or tough it out or find a way to get rid of it or try to ignore it or somehow pretend it's not there so that you can meet your goal, meet your preference. This relationship to pain makes pain a thing. Something solid, substantial, a concept. And something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do. The thing that you think will lead to your awakening. Sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain with via the without mind, a mind that's not made up, without any preferences, and without the concept of pain. You might simply, directly and intimately connect with what is, seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg, and notice them changing and moving, recognizing that this sit now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static. No preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with, seeing and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. And another Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Many years ago, during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a, a slow walk through the forest out back. And it was during the height of autumn color in New England. <laughs> and I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. Incredible beauty. I was quite immersed in this experience and then all of a sudden a knowing coming in. Not through thought, but a very deep intuitive knowing that this beauty is death. The world is dying in its unbearable beauty. I cried on and off for a few days after that, not continuously, but uh, at times quite deeply. And as some of you know, on a long retreat, if you need to, you can do that. I was, in a sense, grieving the loss of the world feeling my heart breaking and at the same time elated.
though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening, an opening and a release. Soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realize the world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light, rain, snowstorm, sunshine, cloud cover, changing sensations, the movement of the breath at the touching point or through the body. Mary Oliver writes about this in her unique and beautiful way. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds, and every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and then, when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts. Quickly followed along by clinging onto the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, all of the habitual fixations that we live with believe and call our own, call me, call mine, and think this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to see to experience more directly, clearly, and more often that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up to now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with particular qualities, particular flavors, textures that are constantly changing themselves on both the gross and on a very subtle level. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive, grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, 
begins to lose its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life, begins to soften as we open our hands, we could say. We begin to see, in fact, how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of simply being in and with life as it is, begins to relax, open, begins to weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. When a particular Dhamma student began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't uh, have any control over the unfolding of events, and as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly, but also began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it. He also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. He recognized that this too was simply unfolding, undoing according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. Because, as he said, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, primarily a stance of irritation, anger at, taking an offensive stance towards things, people, and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was coming from the softening heart of acceptance of how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years and hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally, People ask me, as you may sometimes ask yourself or ask others uh, who practice, uh, why do you practice? And at one point when I was asked this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, 
so that if conditions allow, I'll have uh, the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be really fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be an extraordinary moment. But actually, it'll just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with, with the immediacy of what's occurring. What's occurring in the body, the heart, and the mind. So a moment like any other moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way that beginner's mind, that don't know mind. And in fact, a moment that has never been experienced before. So in the overall perspective of practice, I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for this moment. But the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now is with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways of that the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity. The delusion of a separate, solid self. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go. Relinquishing this again and again and again. One way that this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment, even just breath by breath, and in ways that we could never have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, to clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, I, and you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more just as process. Beginning, changing, and ending again and again, every minute, every second, if we're really attentive. And from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye consciousness, sees eye contact, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant 
or painful or neutral as impermanent. She, he sees the ear as impermanent. The mind, mental phenomena, mind, mind consciousness, mind contact, sees whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. The acceptance of change, the acceptance of the forming and unforming of the birth and the death is actually truly the acceptance of life. All aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment. As we well know, these can change quite rapidly. As we pay a closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience and vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs or rightful rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment to moment. Emotional states of mind for many of us are stickiest experiences. And as we explored in some depth a few Dhamma talks ago, they too change very quickly. So for a briefly example, states of anger, irritation, or resentment, or judgment, they all feel very solidly and solid and seem so right often seems so absolute. Anger is a very powerful, very energetic, passionate energy. With a clear attention into anger, seeing, knowing, and letting go of the self-referencing, the self-referencing identification, my anger, my righteous anger. Letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality in anger, pulling out the thread of self. We can then clearly see what's actually taking place on all sides from all perspectives. There's a clear presence, an immediate connection with the possibility of anger then transforming into a mirror-like wisdom, out of which then can spring appropriate, compassionate action, if necessary. As we learn to receive experience with more clarity, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. We might begin to see that we too, to whatever degree, are also still acting out of and have in the past 
acted out of ignorance, acted out of forgetfulness, acted or more accurately reacted out of old habitual places of suffering many times ourselves. And so we change. We begin to meet ourselves as well as others with open-hearted clarity and more compassion. Dogen, the 13th century Zen master, spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. He said, we do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion impartial care, love, that may include one's enemy. Probably most of us at times have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and each other. And at one point uh, when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. Once when she was 91 and we were uh, doing this, she said, I look older than anybody else in the whole world. And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange. It's so strange, she said. Is it strange? Is it really strange? I mean, stranger than what? (laughs) It's just life doing its thing, life being lifey. And a poem that one of my Israeli students gave me called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines, so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving.
Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time? Really just focused and looked for a while? It keeps changing. It just keeps changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? And another brief three-month retreat story about the mirror of nature as a teacher of impermanence. I was sitting outside uh, behind the Insight Meditation Society observing the grass each day during this particular three-month retreat uh, quite a few years ago in the late fall and noticing that it was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over, being quite acutely aware of all this. Are we different than this? Are we really any different than this? What is the Dhamma of grass? no matter how much moisturizer we use, or no matter how many vitamins we take, or no matter how many energetic walks we take, or how much yoga we do, or no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out. Our hair loses its color. Our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there is nothing we can do about it. And the poet Liselle Mueller had this to say about this. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. And uh, from another perspective, another poem by Red Hawk. He calls it, This time comes when it's easier, the time comes when it's easier to die. We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we've had enough and it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. 
It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you or men will cease to be thrilled with you. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grow gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag of bones. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in our culture is almost like a secret. With everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really truly inclined toward freedom, we'll have to give up the notion that change and even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or even strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experience experientially about change, the macro and micro cycling of life and in our own body. And, and that we, our own body and mind, is not somehow separated out from this. From this process. At the age of 18, <clears throat> my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident and my friend was killed. It was really amazing. One minute she was alive, driving the car, and we'd had three wonderful days together, and the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway dying, and myself with just a few scrapes and bruises. And I was washing her dying body with water, and then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every minute, every second, because now I knew that it could end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, but I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was a big part of what guided me towards spiritual practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I didn't really think or word it in this way. It's been interesting to see how this resolve to live life fully, uh, moment by moment, has unfolded over the years. 
there's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we could call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And it continues. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through the years of our practice. Sometimes it's a conscious choice, a decision made between this or that. But very often, it's just really a matter of being present and paying attention and then responding in whatever ways are the healthiest and most appropriate, both for oneself and others which means relinquishing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging. Engaging or not engaging inwardly and outwardly. Recognizing and letting go of attachments, which actually doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us, but rather relating to them with what might be a radically new way. And from a Cherokee Feast of Days. Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing leads to the end of confusion and anguish. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads to understanding the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances, opens the door of insight into the conditional, selfless, empty nature of all things, all phenomena. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security and impermanence doesn't. But actually, although change may be very difficult and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and get to know it more and more deeply, Anicca can really be a profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice we may also come to realize that on one level it's truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? 
Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare. The worst nightmare. No change. No life. In 1985, uh, my house burned down. No one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was uh, living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we arrived, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house um, had burned down to the ground. My first response, uh, in response to him, uh, was denial. I said, you're kidding. <laughs> but of course, who would call up a friend uh, long distance on Christmas and make that kind of a joke? <laughs> After we finished our very brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who was standing next to me, asked no questions, just held me uh, uh, and let me cry. And then um, my brother and I sat down and talked. He was also there for the holiday. And by the end of uh, my brother's and my two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, we could say. And as some of you probably know, in Asian uh, countries, it's not unusual for people in their 40s and 50s whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. <clears throat> so to make a long story short, uh, I ended up going to Asia for about a year and a half and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently, and then continued in a very similar uh, vein upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that continues to still unwrap, it, unwrap itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. And from Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Ixlan, the thing to do when you are impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And I'd like to read uh, just a little bit of the conversation that uh, took place uh, during that lunch as um, written up by Michael Ventura, who was one of the friends. 
He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funny, funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or the generosity of his manner, yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and to follow it deeply so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. And Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who'd asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send on to me. And one passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe. And of course, the truth of Anicca must be learned over and over and over again, every night, so to say. We don't really grow in a a straight line. We don't really learn in a straight line, but more like in an ascending and descending and tilting kind of curvy way, circular way. And what makes this all bearable is that undefended, open-hearted quality that we could call awe in relationship to our presence and awareness with the way of things.
as we touch and begin to accept the dance that life is in all of its manifestations, our life begins to take on a peacefulness, a deeper balance and an equanimity. And a great appreciation and joy begins to blossom. We live so much more fully in the present moment, seeing all the formations and actions of body, heart, and mind, and the whole dance and play of life around us as continually changing, self-arising, self-liberating, coming and going, forming and unforming. And we're more and more with life just as it is, within the very natural, innate spaciousness and clarity of present moment awareness. As we wake up to the Anicca nature of all phenomena, we less and less experience that feeling of missing anything. Instead, we're responding to life here and now with an authentic, bright liveliness as it dances through us and around us. We're just really simply here with the passing show. And again from the Buddha, this existence of ours is as transient as the autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. It's a gateway into the experiential understanding of the truth that there's no independently existing, separate, solid, sustaining anything. We begin to understand that we're intimately woven into this intricately, endlessly changing, reflective web of life. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted, jeweled net of life. As understanding of anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And closing the talk with a poem by Australian cartoonist and poet, Michael Lunig. And with each of Michael Lunig's poems, he draws a little cartoon. So I'll just briefly describe the cartoon that goes with this little poem. It's a line drawing of a man standing up, facing, facing front, and he's got a, his left arm is outstretched, and in his hand is a frying pan. And in the frying pan is a kind of a big blob of black stuff with smoke billowing out of it. And this is the poem that goes with that cartoon. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. 
Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit quietly just for a moment. 